Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Got a good one for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about FTX. If you're not familiar with what that is, I'm sure many of you are by now, but I'm going to give my own little spin. And then I'll share some updates from a couple of recent articles that I wrote. First, okay, a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of words have been spoken about FTX. I'm sure many of you have seen headlines. You know something bad is happening, but maybe you want to hear what happened in simple terms. So, a quick what happened, right? FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange, recently went bankrupt very, very suddenly. It's all over the news. But to start my description of it, we're going to start talking about custodians, who custodians are. You might have heard of a custodian before, someone like Vanguard or Fidelity. Or maybe we could even talk about something like your bank. These are places that have a duty to be responsible with your money. Now, depending on the institution, that duty can look different. It might mean that they can't use your money to trade stocks without your permission. It might mean that they have to keep a certain percentage of your money in a safe vault with the remainder of your money being covered by some sort of federal insurance. But either way, a custodian, a bank, these organizations, they have a responsibility to you as their clients to keep your money safe. Makes sense, right? So now let's go to FTX, a crypto exchange, similar to a stock exchange in a way. An exchange is a place where buyers and sellers can trade. Now, many of the buyers and sellers with FTX, they kept their assets on the FTX platform. So not only was FTX acting as an exchange, it was also acting as some sort of custodian. Now, that's very similar to how things might work on, say, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard. Now, I use Fidelity as my custodian, but that's also where I'm able to buy or sell my assets, right? It's, it's one and the same to me. It's both a custodian and an exchange. But without their client's permission, FTX used, traded, moved, lended client money in unprotected ways. So when those trades performed poorly, I know it wasn't FTX's intention, but when the trades did perform poorly, when the asset value dropped, or basically when some of the money that they lended out lost value in bad trades, that was clients' money. In fact, it was about $2 billion worth of clients' money. And that client money was risked and lost without client permission. So this is about as bad of a crime as can occur in the financial system. Some of you might know this. I work for a fiduciary wealth management firm here in Rochester, New York. And that word fiduciary, it means I have a legal and ethical obligation to work in my client's best interests. These acts by FTX over the past few weeks, months, years, however long it was going on, that's the polar opposite of what a fiduciary should do. It's really, it's really, really bad, guys. So this problem, it might have stayed a secret forever with FTX. We might not know about it, except, except that much of cryptocurrency, maybe even all of cryptocurrency, but at the very least, much of it is built upon a house of cards. What do I mean by that? To explain that, FTX, they had their own crypto token 
that they created. They created out of thin air. They called it FTT. Okay, so FTX is the firm. Their token is FTT. So why did FTT have any value at all in the first place? Well, there's a simple reason. It's because FTX said that they would pay a certain amount of actual U.S. dollars in exchange for FTT tokens. FTX created the value of FTT out of thin air. Really what happened was FTX created confidence in FTT. So remember that word, confidence. FTX made it so that investors really could exchange their dollars for FTT and then later exchange FTT back into dollars, okay? That was confidence in FTT. Hey, it's actually worth something. I believe it's worth something because FTX will actually pay me for it. That's the confidence that FTX created. So let's go to early November of this year, 2022. Some crypto experts, I believe it was at Coindesk, which is a news organization that's dedicated to crypto. They pointed out that a lot of FTX and its sister firm, which is called Alameda Research, that a lot of FTX and Alameda's assets or their balance sheet, now this is from a company point of view, their company assets were in FTT tokens. And that presents a small problem. Because if I say that I'm holding $10 million worth of client assets and I have 10 billion US dollars in the bank, then everyone's going to be cool and calm and collected. They're going to be confident that I can cover all of my client obligations, right? I have $10 billion sitting there in the bank, which is enough to cover everything I owe to all my clients, just in case, for some reason, they decide to all request their money back at the same time. Confidence is maintained in that scenario. But what if instead of holding 10 billion US dollars, I'm holding $10 billion worth of FTT in the bank? Well, some people might get worried about that because the question they would ask is, can I actually convert those FTT tokens into US dollars? Here I am speaking about the situation. I'm, I'm acting as the custodian in this case. What if I am FTX? And what if I am the organization who gave FTT tokens any semblance of value in the first place? It's pretty easy to see that there might be some weird crack in the system, right? So this company, FTX, they're the ones who say FTT has any value. And once they said that FTT has value, now they're saying that they have $10 billion worth of it? Listen, just because I say that something's worth $10 billion doesn't mean that it actually is worth $10 billion, right? Their confidence is shaken. And so cracks formed in the confidence of FTT, and rightfully so. And when those initial cracks form, a few people, maybe the most worried of people, they sell their FTT. They're like, something's wrong here. I smell smoke. I'm out. And what happens when selling pressure, what does selling pressure do to a price? The answer is it goes down. Selling pressure pushes a price down. When the price drops, the cracks feel justified. So the cracks grow bigger. More people sell and the price drops even further. Suddenly, what was $10 billion worth of FTT is now only worth $5 billion and then $2 billion and then zero. So at that point, FTX no longer had the assets to repay their customers and clients because too many of their assets were held in crypto tokens 
rather than in actual U.S. dollars. Too many of their assets were used in trades without their client's permission. Too many of their assets were lent out to other places like the sister firm Alameda, and Alameda lost the assets in bad trades. That's what happened to FTX. So now, the scary question, or one of the scary questions, there are many scary questions involved. Probably the biggest one is how such, I'm not sure I can call it fraudulent behavior, but just, just wrong behavior, right? The idea of gambling and betting, trading, lending, client assets without their permission I mean, maybe it is fraud. Maybe I need to know exactly what the definition of fraud is. But either way, it's just immoral, unethical, and obviously has lost clients billions of dollars. That's probably the worst behavior or the scariest part of this. But there is another scary question, at least for crypto maximalists. And the question is, why won't similar problems occur across the entire cryptocurrency space? The root of this problem was, hey, you say FTT is worth money. But what if it's not worth any money? And then the confidence in FTT eroded to zero. Can't the same question be asked for all crypto? That's what's on my mind, and that's what has me curious, thinking, concerned for crypto people. Some of you, especially the more astute or dedicated listeners and readers, might say like, well, hey, Jesse, don't you own a little bit of cryptocurrency? And the answer is I do right? About 1% of my portfolio is in Bitcoin and about 1% of my portfolio is in Ethereum. Those two assets could very well go to zero. But the reason, the very intentional reason why those holdings are such small percentages in my portfolio is because when I bought them, I had a feeling that maybe, maybe these things could take over the world and my 1% or 2% at the time will grow to 20% of my portfolio, 10x my money. But it might go to zero. And if something does go to zero, then I want it to be a very, very small portion of my portfolio. And throughout these past couple of years, I'm fully willing to admit that my optimism and pessimism over cryptocurrency has flip-flopped. I've never felt like a dedicated maximalist. I've also never felt like a complete hater. I will say that my optimism or pessimism, it's not constant. It definitely ebbs and flows, and it's definitely affected by what's going on in the marketplace, which is just a terrific investing lesson in and of itself, right? The idea that what you see in the market can affect how you feel. It shouldn't, right? We, we should maintain a steady, rational view over all our investments every day. We, we don't buy certain things. We shouldn't buy certain things just because of whether the price is up or down. And yet we do. It's hard to combat that feeling. That's a feeling I have for cryptocurrency. Okay, well, there's some lessons we can learn from this. And, and one of the big lessons is that stories can seduce us. So Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, right? He was the CEO of FTX. He's this 30-year-old guy. He's kind of had this fun, quirky story. He's a super nerd and tons of ostensibly smart people were seduced by SBF's story, right? Because if there's anybody who's supposed to fit the mold of a super nerd who's going to make billions of dollars and change the world, it's someone who looks, talks, acts, dresses like this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried. This year, 2022, some of the biggest investment firms in the world valued FTX at $32 billion and invested their money at that valuation. 
That was this year. That was earlier this year. And now the firm is worth zero. They were seduced by the story. So that's a really important lesson to remember. You know, when you invest in a brick company, you are not going to be seduced by the story of bricks. You'll be seduced by the revenues and the profits and the assets of the company, but not by the story of bricks. But when you invest in futuristic technology, you're investing in a story about that future. Profits? Well, there aren't any profits yet, right? The profits of a futuristic company are going to come some number of years down the line. They're going to say to you, you know, just wait a decade until we're running everything on Earth, and then you'll get your profits. It's a great story, but it's also easy to lie, bend the truth, be seduced within these stories. And that's what happened here. And another important lesson is just that we have to be careful with our words. And specifically here, I'm not thinking about SBF. I mean, obviously, he should have been more careful with his words. I'm thinking about these celebrity endorsers who now, I mean, they've tarnished their reputations to some extent. People like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, Kevin O'Leary, Larry David, Giselle Bundchen, Shaquille O'Neal, they were encouraging people through celebrity endorsement to invest in FTX. All of those investments are now worth zero. Many clients lost all their money in FTX. It's almost like these celebrities were endorsing rat poison. They didn't know it at the time, right? It's not like they were intentionally endorsing rat poison. I have a feeling that none of these celebrities were intentionally steering people towards frauds. But obviously, they were endorsing a product that they didn't fully understand. Not many people did fully understand the fact that FTX had this future. It's not like endorsing a brick company. When you endorse a brick company, you can feel pretty good that bricks are going to do their thing. When you endorse futuristic technology like FTX, who knows what'll happen. Okay, switching gears now, switching gears. We are going to do the usual thing where I'm going to take a couple articles that I've written recently on the Best Interest blog and talk about them because I know some of you would rather hear, you'd rather listen then read. I get it. I get it. It's easier to listen to a podcast than it is to sit down and distract your eyes with an article. So this first one is called Six Investing Lessons from Our Honeymoon's Terrible Start. Yes, this is a true story. We did have a terrible start to our honeymoon. Combination of bad luck and some human incompetence, it torpedoed our first travel day. But naturally, I took it as an investing lesson. So our itinerary was Rochester to Boston to Tokyo to Hanoi, Vietnam. Then after a few days in Hanoi, we'd go onward to Chiang Mai, Bangkok, and other parts of Thailand. But things went poorly from the start. So first, our plane in Rochester had a mechanical issue. There was like a 90-minute delay while they tried to fix it. They couldn't fix it. So then a replacement plane got called up from Philadelphia, but it ran late. And that accounted for another like 60 minutes of delay. And then once we were on board the replacement, this is probably the most frustrating part, we just sat there on the tarmac, and I'm still not sure why, but we were probably in the plane on the ground for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. You know, normally you're sitting there in the plane for like 15 minutes while they taxi and give the announcements, maybe 30 minutes. We were there for at least an hour. And the entire time, the ground crew, the staff, they assured us that our connection in Boston was safe. They said, we're watching carefully. You have plenty of time. We've got an eye on it. Don't worry, we will make up time in the air. But 
Kelly and I were nervous because we're looking at the clocks and the clocks don't lie. And so, as our connecting flight to Japan pushed back from its Boston gate, our inbound flight from Rochester was descending through Boston's clouds. We had a three-hour scheduled layover in Boston, but that time all got consumed in Rochester before ever taking off, and we missed our connection. So Boston to Tokyo, it's a once-per-day, 14-hour flight, and we had no recourse, we had no options, but to wait 24 hours for the next day's flight. We actually got lucky, we learned, we got lucky to even get seats on that second flight. It was already full, but they always keep four seats in reserve, specifically for mothers with infants, so that they can put a little bassinet in front of them, and we got two of those seats. So, our carefully constructed honeymoon plans, I mean, listen, they were far from ruined, but they were definitely shaken up. We lost the first full day in Vietnam. We had to cancel our trip to a place called Ninh Binh, which is a beautiful area of Vietnam we were looking forward to. But you investors can learn some valuable lessons from our frustrations. So the first lesson, some things are out of your control. I've quoted Annie Duke before here on The Best Interest, and her quote that I really love is, two things determine how your life will turn out, luck and the quality of your decisions. Okay, we didn't choose to have our plane break down, right? That wasn't a choice. That wasn't a quality of our decision. We had no say in the replacement plane's tardiness. Really, that's just bad luck, and bad luck happens. So similarly, we never choose to watch our portfolios drop in value completely out of our control. All we can control are our decisions, like what asset allocation to invest with. Ideally, we have an asset allocation that captures enough upside reward to achieve our financial goals, but with a low enough risk profile to stomach the inevitable bad luck of temporary losses. Lesson number two, build in margin, but sometimes margin fails. So because bad luck happens, guys, it's imperative to build margin into our systems. So Kelly and I, we had a three-hour layover in Boston built into our itinerary. That seems like more than enough margin, right? Well, apparently not because, well, because we missed our flight. Personally, I don't think the lesson here is that we should have built more margin in. Three hours should have been fine, and I think 95% of the time, we would have wasted that margin, really, by just sitting, waiting idly in the Boston airport. Just like most of the time, you actually waste your insurance premiums by never using the insurance itself. So instead, I think the lesson is there's always a scenario that could possibly test the limits of your margin, right? Margin's a good thing, but there's always a scenario that might test the limits of your margin. So the question for you, for me, for all of us to ponder is how do we balance the wasted margin against the possibility for disaster, right? Zero margin is a bad option because we're just setting ourselves up for disaster, but too much margin is wasteful, right? It's just wasted time, right? If you have a one-day layover for every flight, you're just going to be wasting days of time in the airport. We need to balance wasted margin against the possibility for disaster. It's a challenge, but it's something we need to try to do. Lesson number three, try to keep your cool because it's pretty hard. So right now, some of my clients are nervous. Their portfolios are down six or seven figures here in 2022. And so they're thinking to themselves, don't just stand there, do something. Now, their thoughts are completely justified, completely human, but part of investment education is to teach and remind them, well, first, 
I hear you. I understand you. I get it. You're not alone. Let me offer some ideas to ponder and then let me know what you think. We also remind them that, hey, we chose an asset allocation based on your goals, your risk tolerance, your timelines. Have those changed? You know, your financial plan dictates your investment choices, not the other way around. We remind them that changing asset allocation based on recent performance is, as history shows, it's challenging, short-sighted, usually regrettable. We remind them that their portfolios worked really wonderfully over the past 10 years, that markets do work in cycles. And after a wonderful 10-year cycle, it's not necessarily surprising that we're having a bear market right now. That said, yes, 2022 is uniquely bad, right? Because of the correlated performance of stocks and bonds both being down. But that said, the forward outlook is good, right? When price-to-earnings ratios are down, like they are right now, that's a sign of strong forward stock returns. When interest rates are up, like they are right now, that's a strong sign of forward bond returns. So right now is not the time to abandon ship. It's exactly the opposite, in fact. The airplane parallel here isn't perfect, but there are similarities, right? My wife and I were frustrated. We saw our problems growing worse before us. It felt like nobody cared as much as we did. But no matter our stress, no matter our frustration, our apathy, we couldn't fix the plane in Rochester. We couldn't fly the replacement from Philadelphia. We couldn't ask the pilots on the tarmac to just go, right? And we couldn't ask the Tokyo-bound plane to wait for us. Our negative emotions... While understandable, right, they served no productive purpose. Our feelings were perfectly understandable, perfectly human, but not helpful. And there's this quote from Epictetus. You might be able to guess he was a Roman guy. This picture with a quote on it, it's not actually him, right? It's a marble statue. I'm not even sure if he was a real person, but Epictetus said, happiness and freedom begin with a clear understanding of one principle. Some things are within your control and some things are not. Simple, profound. Thank you, Epictetus. The next lesson from our missed flight. Bad things will happen, but they can get worse. So there's an old joke in investing circles. Question, how does a stock drop 90%? Answer, it drops 80%, then it gets cut in half. In other words, one bad thing happening, an 80% drop, doesn't preclude more bad things from happening, like another 50% drop. Previous bad luck doesn't mean you're due for good luck, and vice versa. It's the same logical fallacy leading to results-oriented thinking. Recall what Annie Duke said earlier, you can't control your luck. We, Kelly and I, had three consecutive bad lucks eat away our entire layover margin. Investing, at least in the short run, looking at individual assets, can work similarly. The used car company Carvana, for example, has suffered setback after setback in the past 12 months. Its stock has plummeted. And there's no silver lining waiting behind all the bad news. There's just more bad news. And then in the article, I show a chart of Enron's stock price from 1994 to 2002. And when Enron started going downhill, there were 20 and 30% drops and then small recoveries. And then another 30 or 40% drop and then a small recovery then a 50% drop and a small recovery. And all along the time, it probably took a year for that to happen. There were investors out there thinking, oh, well, it dropped, but it'll recover from here. Oh, it'll recover from here though, right? And it drops more. Oh, it's going to recover from here, right? And it went all the way down to zero. So just because bad things happen 
doesn't mean that more bad things aren't going to happen in the future, okay? It's kind of a tough lesson to learn, but an important one for investors. And then the next lesson, those bad things, they don't just add up, they actually compound. So three minor setbacks for us, right? Three hour-long setbacks compounded into a 24-hour delay. And in investing, those bad results can similarly compound into permanent and or complete loss of capital. The last lesson, I think it's the last lesson, it is the last lesson, is that incentives drive behavior. It's something I talk about a lot here on The Best Interest. I know that nobody in the airlines, at the airports, I know that nobody acted maliciously against us. Now that said, I learned an important lesson from the ground staff who assured us that we'd make our connection. Because here's this hypothetical question. What's the easiest way to make a problem go away? The answer is, you convince those concerned that the problem doesn't exist at all. So hindsight being 2020, I think that the ground crew in Rochester shoulda, coulda, woulda looked into rerouting us a different way, or if need be, telling us the cold, hard truth. We weren't going to be able to make our connection in Boston, and our best bet would be to go home in Rochester, sleep there overnight, and try again the next day. Instead, the ground crew smiled and nodded, told us we would make our flight. They optimistically sent us onward to Boston, saying, you'll be fine, you've got plenty of time. I'm looking at it right here on my terminal. They made us believe that the problem didn't exist. Why? Well, at least in part, because that ground crew in Rochester has no incentive of accountability from us, the passengers. Once we're onto the next city, once we're on the ground in Boston, we're no longer their problem. And so we became a pretty big problem to the poor ground crew in Boston. They had to spend an hour with us looking for the best, easiest, fastest way to get us to Hanoi, securing a hotel room for us in Boston, setting us up with food vouchers. I mean, the Boston crew had to clean up after the Rochester crew. And you better believe that some part of the Boston crew, their heads thought, well, we didn't create this mess. Why do we need to bend over backwards to help these two passengers? So anyway, incentives drive behavior, just like Charlie Munger said, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. So ultimately, listen, I get it. Our trouble, this was a first world problem. Our 18-day trip was now only 17 days. Oh no, I get it, I get it. Now that said, the helplessness of air travel is a great reminder for how investors should act. You make the best decisions you can, you use margin to shield yourself from bad luck, and then you cross your fingers and you hope for the best. All right, guys, one more article. This one is not too personal finance and investing related. That said, I have a feeling you'll find it really interesting because the title of this article is Why I'm Quitting Social Media. I'm writing this, well, really, I'm speaking this so that people I've met through social media will get the answer to the inevitable question of like, hey, where'd Jesse go? But I'd love to know if you've had similar thoughts to mine. So please feel free to stay in touch with me via email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. At its heart, in a small way, this is a personal finance article or speech because our main resource in life is not money, right? It's time. Part of me quitting social media is that I want to reclaim my time. So let's dive in to my reasons for quitting social media. The first one, social media wastes too much time. Hey, I just said that. So it's true. It's true for creators and consumers alike. 
I've sent 19,300 tweets from my blog's Twitter account. Since social media reared its head in the mid-2000s, I'm betting that I've spent thousands, thousands of hours on social media. I don't think that's too ridiculous. I think it's simple fact. I bet you've spent thousands of hours on it too. And to what end? Yes, so there's been some good. I've met some fantastic people. I've shared with them. I've learned from them. Some of you have probably found this podcast, found my blog through social media. That's an amazing result. And that's what I wanted to happen. Now that said, it's kind of like saying, I've met some golden souls at the crack house. Great folks with plenty of worldly wisdom. I mean, yes, I'm sure the people there are good, but that's not a good reason to smoke crack, right? As good as the people are who I have met through social media, unfortunately, I think that the cons of social media, or of me using it at least, outweigh the pros of having met those people. Uh, According to Statista, which is a statistics aggregation site, the global average usage of social media is 2.5 hours per person per day. Now, usage at that time, I can't believe that's good for humanity, and I no longer want to be a part of it. My next reason, social media is addictive by design. If you haven't seen Netflix's The Social Dilemma, it's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, I think it's worth your time. The documentary shows how social media, quote, nurtures addiction to maximize profit, unquote, by, quote, manipulating people's views, emotions, and behavior, unquote. Addiction, hey, that's another crack analogy. And manipulation, that's the underpinning of social media. I don't want to subject myself to it anymore. And there are some stats associated with this movie. A 5,000-person study found that higher social media use correlated with self-reported declines in mental and physical health and life satisfaction. All right, my next reason, social media hacks dopamine. So this is how social media addicts us, guys. It hacks the dopamine system in our brain to the point that not using social media starts to seem too boring. In other words, it changes our humanity. This is personal, right? I can't sit silent and read a book for 10 minutes without this thought seeping into my head. Hey, maybe you should check your phone. I'm ashamed of that. I feel like a kid who can't control his compulsion to eat the marshmallows. You know that marshmallow study? If you're not familiar, Google it. I've got a link on the blog. But I feel like a kid who has no sort of impulse control. My attention span is gone, and I'm far from alone. I have another link in the blog post that shows the stats, how the attention span is changing. So that hunt for dopamine, more likes, more followers, more retweets, it compels us to do dumb stuff. So I wrote this article when, let me think, I was on the plane back from my honeymoon in Vietnam and Thailand. It was fresh on my mind. We witnessed an appalling number of tourists in Southeast Asia. And these are tourists, these are global tourists, right? It wasn't just white Western people like Kelly and I. It was people from all over the world. We witnessed an appalling number of them doing stupid, shitty things for social media photos, sneaking cameras into forbidden Buddhist temples, blocking long waiting lines to ensure that they had the perfect photo background, recordings, just contrived videos that are made to look candid and spontaneous. It's sometimes unethical. It's sometimes immoral. It's usually just plain stupid. This is how we act because we're addicted to magical internet points and the dopamine that they provide us. So I can't make other people stop, but I can choose to not partake myself. 
Next reason, social media interrupts deeper work. Okay, we've already established that social media wastes time, right, in and of itself. But kind of like a train leaving the station, most of us, including me, we need time to get up to speed into our flow state or into deep work. And again, studies show that every social media visit, it makes it harder to do this deep work because we get into our flow state, we're doing good, and then we interrupt ourselves with social media. We go back to work five minutes later and we're no longer in that flow state. It takes time to get up to speed in flow state, okay? Next reason, social media is just a rat race. I know some creators, I mean, these are awesome personal finance and investing creators who spend eight plus hours a day on social media, mainly that spent interacting with other accounts as a means of getting noticed. And some of these people, they even hire assistants to help because the more your accounts grow on social media, the more maintenance time is required to maintain that level, but then also to continue growing. It's kind of like the faster you spin your hamster wheel, the harder you have to work to maintain it. Next reason, the filters for expertise on social media are far too noisy. Who adjudicates expertise anyway? Social media is making that question harder to answer. The main reason is because the metric of merit, if you will, on social media is a follower count, which can be easily hacked. And I might as well go into that. I was a part for a while, again, kind of ashamed to say it, but at the same time, it's not too shameful on its face, but the results can be shameful. I was a part of a couple groups on Twitter where the express point of those groups was that we'd all share each other's content in order to all grow each other's accounts. And some of the people in those groups are putting out amazing content. And so you'd feel like their follower growth was well-deserved. But some of the people in those groups are putting out just boring, simple, bad, incorrect, unethical content. And you can choose not to share their work, which I would do my best not to, but they're getting the results of those groups. They're getting the results of other people sharing their work. They're not naturally sharing their work. It's forced. And then they're getting these huge follower accounts. And what you end up with are giant accounts on social media that appear like they must be legitimate. I mean, how else do you get 100,000 followers? When in reality, that growth has just been hacked. Some of these accounts, so I've been asked questions like, what's the real difference between a Roth and a traditional account? I've been asked that question by self-proclaimed money experts with 50, 100,000 followers. How can an expert not know the answer to that question? I mean, real life demands that we show our expertise. But on social media, all you need to do is talk about it until others believe you. Next reason, social media is low quality and repetitive. I found that originality on social media is shockingly rare. But again, that's by design. Because even slightly complex messages, they fail to provide that quick hit of dopamine that keeps users coming back. The social media system rewards simplicity. Now, my most liked tweet ever reads, 9% into a 401k every paycheck, $500 in a Roth IRA every month. Extremely simple, extremely effective. Sure, okay, that's a good message. But it's been said a billion different ways before. Kind of like saying, use the bathroom, wash your hands. It's a good idea. That's not exactly earth-shattering. In fact, many content creators deliberately repeat the same simple messages over and over and over. They intentionally kowtow to the dumbest common denominator. 
Again, and that's because that style of content, it captures the most eyeballs from the most users. Saying anything that's remotely complex, even if it's extremely helpful, doesn't capture user dopamine. So they keep it simple and they keep it stupid. That's by design. Next reason, social media promotes audience capture. Audience capture is a self-enforcing feedback loop where an audience rewards a creator for a particular message, thus encouraging the creator to repeat that message. One of the more mundane and grotesque examples is YouTuber Nick Perry, aka Nakato Avocado. Perry's first foray into YouTube saw him sharing his two passions, playing the violin and promoting veganism. But there wasn't a very big audience for vegan violinists. So, desperate for more viewers, Perry betrayed his passions, and he began recording videos where he eats disgusting amounts of food while chatting into the camera. I'm serious, that's it. That's the content. There's one man, his camera, and gluttony. Perry grew popular, and as he grew more popular, his audience requested more videos with larger piles of greasier food. Perry now has 3.4 million followers on YouTube. He's also gained over 200 pounds. And I can attest, I'm not going to make you go Google it, but before he was a pretty much slim, normally built human, and now he is morbidly obese. And I would have shared a picture of him doing his thing on my blog, but not only is the food itself grotesque, I mean, so is the fact that Perry changed his entire personhood to pursue internet fame. So I write and I talk on the best interest for my enjoyment, and I love the fact that many thousands of you enjoy it too, right? I think that's a win-win. But no offense, and I really mean no offense, you guys, I never want to be captured by you. And quitting social media helps that end. The next reason, social media encourages the worst of us. Social media platforms and their algorithms have recognized that anger is the most engaging emotion. Nothing attracts eyeballs like a fight. And that itself, that's the root of echo chambers and political divide. And boy, do the advertising dollars follow. But sometimes even benign conversations can turn sour thanks to social media's tentacles. So I was chatting with an awesome personal finance creator over the summer. I've got a ton of respect for her work. But when the conversation turned towards working together, you know, her working with the best interest in some way, she said, and I quote, you're a great writer and I enjoy your podcast appearances, but I hope you understand, I don't think my audience wants to see another straight white guy talking to them about money, end quote. I think that's a little bit gross. I think that maybe it's audience capture or maybe her social media turned her into some sort of a bigot. Okay, I'm not even citing the more egregious problems with social media, like misinformation and propaganda, echo chambers of hate and grift, severe mental health crises in teens, and I'm sure I'm missing a few more. I do wonder, will this decision hurt the best interests? I'm worried about that. As anthropologists say, social death is worse than a physical death. And in the modern age, leaving social media kind of feels like a self-imposed exile. Am I choosing social death? Maybe, but I think the site will be okay. And I'm very excited about the positives of this decision. 
So stay happy, stay healthy, you guys. And again, don't hesitate to stay in touch via email, jesse at bestinterest.blog. All right, guys, that has been long enough for today. I'll save some listener questions for next time. If you do have a question that you want to ask me, I'd love to answer it here on the podcast. You can email that question to jesse at bestinterest.blog. And that's it. Thank you for listening to episode 44 of the Best Interest Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.